It will be spring soon, and the orchids will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thickets, and they will be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries and cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries, Mr. Frodo? No, Sam. I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. In a land far from home and far from the safety of the Shire, two hobbit companions console each other on the side of Mount Doom with thoughts of home. Samwise Gamgee is homesick for the beautiful rosy cotton. And poor Frodo, well, he can barely even, even remember the sights or the smells or the tastes of home. It's a picture in the Lord of the Rings movie which is painted in dark, dark colours as these two hobbits find themselves far from home and far from hope. Well, far from home for the Israelites, Babylon. And not by choice, but forced relocation over hundreds and hundreds of miles. Think refugees in a foreign land, or maybe more likely, prisoners of war in a foreign land. They're far from home, but they're also far from hope. Their eyes have seen things too numerous to recount, too horrific to reveal. They had lost everything, family members, lost all social status, all possessions, all dignity left behind. They'd seen the suffering of and had been separated from friends. And emotions, well, they can barely even be described. A depth of anger, a depth of grief, massive despair. As now they find themselves as a minority surrounded by the majority who do not worship their gods. And if you're honest, at the moment, the gods of the place they are now are on top. What is that about? Has our God rejected us? Has our God forgotten about us? Or are their gods just more powerful than our gods? What happened to our promised eternal king? What happened to our promised land? Such were the agonies and the emotions of exile for the Israelites. You can see some of them, can't you, in your mind's eye? Like Samwise Gamgee, who sits with grandson on his knee, reminiscing about the good old days when they were home. Maybe even a tear running down his cheek as he compares his current lodgings in exile to his old days back home. And maybe some of the Israelites were more like Frodo, been away from home so long that they could not even remember what home was like. See, our outlines could be easily painted onto that dark picture, couldn't they? We know what it is to live as the minority surrounded by a majority who reject our gods. And Peter calls us, doesn't he, strangers in the world. 
We, we've cried the tears of friends and family who have wandered from our gods when the pressures of the gods of this world seem too much. We know what it is to spend time in the dark shadows of this world, whether it's disease or depression or illness or death. We know what it is to be far from hope. But what is it that Samwise Gamgee comforts Frodo with in the dark, dark, intense homesickness of Mount Doom? What is it that God comforts his people with in the intense homesickness of exile? He gives them a vision of home. What do you need when you're homesick? You need to be reminded of what home is like because hope for the homesick is found in a vision of home. And so in Ezekiel 47, in verses 1 to 12, what do we have but a description of home? For the Israelites, that was Jerusalem. It was the promised land. For us, in the dark world, it is a picture of the new creation. It is a picture of what is ahead. Now, when we talk about our future state, we often speak of heaven. And that brings to mind a place that is maybe far off, non-material, ethereal, kind of disembodied spirits. Do you know, that is not our final state. That is not the final state of our hope and our joy. The biblical teaching is far greater than that. The biblical teaching is a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. It pictures an entirely renewed, perfected, restored physical world where we will live and the Lord will be there. That is our hope. And so this morning we're going to describe that hope from Ezekiel 47. And for the exiles and for us, this is the picture that you stick in your mirror at home. Or this is a little photo you stick in your wallet or it's your desktop background on your PC. Because hope for the homesick is found in this vision of home. And so we're going to describe it together. We're going to see five things. And they spell out, if you take the first letter, the word alive. First one, it is abundant. Look with me at verse 7. Down at verse 7, it says, I saw a great number of trees. Then skim down to verse 9. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Here is abundance. None of the scarcity, none of the shortages of this world. Home is no opportunity cost, no need for budgeting, because there is only abundance. What else? Well, it's life-giving. You see that in verse 8? The abundance is coupled with life-givingness. Verse 8, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters into the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water becomes fresh. And then down into the end of verse 9, so where the river flows, everything will live. What is salty becomes fresh. What is dead becomes alive. Home is no hankies and no hospitals and no hearses. There is no disease. There is no depression. There is no death. Only fullness of life. What else? Well, it's ideal. And not just ideal, actually, but it is the ideal. 
This language of Ezekiel 47 may well be ringing bells for us. If you look back to Genesis 1, you'll read language like, let the water teem with living creatures. The abundance of Ezekiel 47 is only a reflection of what is perfect in Genesis 1. Or what about Revelation 22? You read Revelation 22 and you read, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. The life-givingness of Ezekiel 47 is only a reflection of what home is like perfected in Revelation 22. This is the ideal. O hopeless, homesick ones, look at our standard in Genesis 1. Look at the image in Revelation 22. That is the ideal. That is our standard of home. Ezekiel 47, we're in exile, but remember, this is not what it is going to be like forever. There's abundance and life-givingness in the ideal. He's a little taster. None of the curses of the fall that we read from Genesis 3 onwards, only the perfection, the very goodness of the original ideal. What else? There's a stress on variety. Did you notice that? So look at verse 10. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Wikipedia tells me that's roughly 557 different species, for those that are interested. Also, verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. There's varieties, glorious. And then lastly, oh, choose your E. You could have edifying, you could have enriching, pick one. But verse 12, the fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Home is alive. It is all of these things. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? Do you remember the new creation, Christian? Do not deprive yourself of this hope. One of the problems we have as Christians is that we're far too easily satisfied. We're far too comfortable in this dark, dead world. Can I ask you, Raise your expectations. Raise your eyes. Raise your standards. Don't get comfy here. Because look where we have come from. That's our standard. Genesis 1. Look where we're going. Revelation 22. That is what we are waiting for. What is alive. And so set your standard there. Don't be comfortable here. I wonder if you would describe your life as constant homesickness for heaven. Because you're not satisfied with this world. Are you homesick? When was the last time you found yourself daydreaming about the new creation? Or when was the last time that in conversation with a Christian, conversation just naturally moved towards our hope? Or when you were speaking to a struggling Christian who just can't get past the shadows of this world, did you say, hang on, let's, let's read Revelation 22 together? Let's read Ezekiel 47. Don't deprive yourself of this hope. And don't get caught up with the things of this world. When we relish the hope that we have in the new creation, then we don't yield to the sinful pleasures of this world. And we don't believe the advertising that tells us the one with the most toys wins. And we don't 
and devote our best energies to laying up treasures in this life. Like, what's ahead? And we don't dream our most exciting dreams about relationships or accomplishments in this world where they perish. No, our most exciting dreams are about what is ahead. We hope in something which is far, far greater. Let me ask you, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? Do you remember the new creation, Christian? Hope for the homesick is found in this vision of home. Entertain this thought for a second. Can you imagine a world that did not have hope? Nothing. It's, it's horrendous. We all put our hope in something because we couldn't get through a single day if we were hopeless. And so there's the hope of a parent for their child to achieve what they never did. Or there's the hope of a single person to find that special someone. Or there's the hope of that childless couple that that pregnancy test would come back positive. Or there's the hope that that sick friend will one day recover. But we all know, some of us too well, what it is to have hopes go unrealized. What it is to have hopes dashed. And actually there is nothing quite so horrific. The pregnancy test doesn't come back positive. That special someone never arrives. And that sick friend doesn't recover. Nietzsche was a 19th century, late 19th century philosopher. And he said this, Hope is the worst of evils, for it prolongs the torments of man. The question is, is this hope of the new creation, is this a live hope of Ezekiel 47, just going to be a hope that is dashed? Is it going to be an evil which torments us? Will the, Babel, will the exiles never return from Babylon? Will we get to the end of this life and find out that there's nothing there? Do you know what, what I love about Ezekiel 47? Is that not only does it describe this hope in abundantly lavish colors but it also grounds that hope in utter, utter certainty. But as well as grounding our hope, it serves also to keep our feet on the ground. Let me explain what I mean by that. I consider myself to be in exile currently. I'm a Scotsman who is living in London. And it, it is a dark, dark world. Uh, and I've, I've been there four years. Um, now, when I daydream, when I get homesick and I daydream about Edinburgh and about Scotland, my, my imagination has a tendency to run away with itself. It, get, it gets exaggerated. And so when I capture myself daydreaming, in my daydreams so far, it's never been raining in my daydreams about Edinburgh. <laughs> never once. And do you know what? In my daydreams, there are no trams in Edinburgh. <laughs> you see, my, my, ex, my expectations, my... My daydreams have a, a tendency to run away with themselves. And so what Ezekiel does is it does not just ground our hope in certainty, but it keeps our feet on the ground. It reminds us what our hope is really like. And so we're going to see three things that ground our hope and keep our feet on the ground. Firstly, it is from God. That's obvious, but we mustn't miss it. We're presented with this river. 
which transforms what is desolate to the abundance. It transforms despair to joy. Did you notice where the river starts? Have a look in verse 1. We hear, I saw water coming out from under the thresholds of the temple. This river, this life-giving river, starts in the place where God dwells. It is from God. And the fact that it comes from God shows us a couple of things. It has a miraculous flow. It goes from being the tiniest trickle to being a massive river that no one can cross within a, a distance of just over a mile. And also, it travels 24 miles from the temple to the Dead Sea. I don't know if you know your geography, but that's not a natural water course. It goes down the Jordan Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and across various mountain ranges. Now, you do not have to be a genius to know that water doesn't flow uphill. But here, this river, because it comes from God, it goes its water course. It's actually a kind of inverted Red Sea incident. Instead of dry ground through a sea, it is a river course through a wilderness of mountains. And also, as well as a miraculous flow, it's got a miraculous effect. Someone in the know has written about the Dead Sea and said, after millennia of accumulation, the high amounts of sodium, magnesium, calcium, potassium, and other chemicals have left the Dead Sea virtually devoid of life. The clue's in the name, isn't it? It's the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. And yet even this Dead Sea cannot hold out against the life-giving powers of this river. Wherever the river flows, we read, everything will live. Dear Christian, this is one hope that will never, ever be dashed because it comes from God's. It is His work, not ours. And so this is one basket which you can put every single one of your eggs into. It is grounded in the fact that it comes from God's. It is not dependent on our good works. It's not dependent on all of us getting together to fight climate change. But it is from God. That is utter certainty. Secondly, it is from God, but also it is through the cross. We've seen that the river flows from the temple. And if you read the the six chapters before Ezekiel 47, what you see is the temple and the altar being restored in their right place. And the message is, you cannot be in relationship with God without sin being dealt with. Sin must be dealt with if you are to be in relationship with God. And if you're not in relationship with God, you cannot enjoy the hope of the new creation. And so did you notice the flow of this river? Look down with me. The end of verse 1. We read, The water was coming down from under the south of the temple, south of the altar. Too often we seek the blessings of God without wanting to know the God who gives them. You know the child who sees his dad come home from a business trip and he runs down the front path and instead of hugging the dad, he hugs the briefcase because he knows in the briefcase there's a little prezi that has come back from the business trip. But the message of the hope of the new creation is not like that. If you want to know the hope, you have to know the gods. 
And if you want to know the God, then sin must be dealt with. And so this river flows past the altar. The route to the new creation treads a path which goes past the cross of the Lord Jesus. Where the Lord Jesus removes the curse that is upon us. And not just upon us, but upon the whole creation. The Lord Jesus is the one who dies so that I might be made alive. He suffers the curse so that I may know the blessing. He is, if you like, exiled so that we may be brought home. And he is the one who is the spring of water that wells up into eternal life. He is our river which makes what is dead alive. And so if you want this hope, if we are to know this hope of the new creation, we must walk that path which goes past the cross. Now this has implications for this life as well as the life to come. You will never truly enjoy this creation unless you know the God of creation. Maybe you're not a Christian and as well as knowing the pains of dashed hopes, you also know what it is to struggle to find any fulfillment or satisfaction in this world. The joys of alcohol are fleeting, the pleasure of sex is momentary, the enjoyment of money is short-lived, and even the best friendships come to an end. And fulfillment always seems to be one step away. Do you know, you shouldn't be surprised about this. Because seeking enjoyment or fulfillment in this creation without knowing the God of creation is like a fish seeking fulfillment outside of water. Looks attractive, but it's going to end in death. You see, to really know what it is to hope in the new creation, you must walk that path which goes past the cross. And you know, again... This grounds our hope in utter certainty. Because our hope is in the finished, completed work of Christ on the cross. And again, it's nothing of us. In the summer, I went to the Edinburgh Central Mosque. And it was open as part of the Edinburgh Festival. And I was intrigued to see inside and to chat to some of them in there. And they were very friendly and very welcoming. But one question I asked the Muslims there was, what certainty do you have of the hope of paradise, as they call it. I asked, can you be certain about entering paradise and avoiding hellfire? And the Muslims I asked said this. I wrote it down so as not to misrepresent them. The first one said, you just never know, and you just have to wait and see. An awkward pause followed where she uh, laughed nervously, but I didn't really see the funny sides. She continued, but you can do things to increase your chances, like charity. The other one said, life is a test, and on that day you will be given your dues. There's no assurance there. Nothing. You have to wait and see. And if I'm honest, if it's a case of me being given my dues, knowing my sinful heart, then there is no hope at all. The cross of the gospel, the cross of our Lord Jesus, is the rock-solid assurance that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and that we will be raised and redeemed to live with him forever.
forever. The Muslims have no true hope because they do not have the true Jesus. We do. And the message of Christ crucified in our place, providing our pardon, providing our righteousness, and rising again to show that life beyond death is there, that is not a wait-and-see hope. That is, I am certain now, because that hope comes through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is from God, and it is through the cross. Lastly, it is also for God. I wonder if you know how the book of Ezekiel ends. Turn probably one page in your Bibles. The last four words of Ezekiel 48. It simply says, the Lord is there. Why did God restore his people from death to life? Well, so that he might live with them. Why did he cleanse them from sin? So that he could live with them. Why does he transform this creation to be perfect so that he can live there? It is for him. Because he can't dwell with sinful people and he can't dwell in an unclean, dead world. This is for him. We are simply the beneficiaries of God acting for his sake, for his own glory. Now, how certain are we that God will always act for his own glory? He'll always do that. So our hope is grounded in the fact that God will always act for his own glory. You do not get more certain than that. Our hope is from God. It is through the cross and it is for God. And we are the glorious beneficiaries of his grace in that. This hope this alive hope. It is not a wait and see. It is not an evil that will prolong our torments in this world. No, no. It is a certain hope which brings hope for the future. It brings joy in darkness and it brings perspective in our trials. It is glorious. It is a light. It is a beauty which no shadow of this world can ever, ever touch. Halfway through those verses we read, the man asked Ezekiel, Son of man, do you see this? Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? Do you remember the new creation, Christian? What a hope. Let's pray.